If you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 6 will be our text this Lord's Day. We left off here uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but if you remember, we are at a point where uh, Jesus is preaching what we refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, although uh, we believe these are two different sermons, not just a summary of one, uh, mostly because of the location from which they're given. Uh, Matthew tells us Jesus was preaching on a mountain. Luke tells us he was preaching on a plain. Uh, there are certainly similarities. There are some differences. Um, but for example, uh, two Lord's Days ago when we were looking at Luke 6, we looked at the Beatitudes, which is a, a much shorter version than what we read in Matthew's Gospel. But, but in that, uh, I asked you guys some questions about the text. I'm going to ask you questions again today uh, just to get us to consider what it is Jesus is really preaching to his followers in this sermon. Uh, there's a lot of people there, but he's directing his sermon to his disciples. And what I believe he's doing is calling them uh, to the standard of what it means to, to be a Christian and a world of lostness, how we should be indeed set apart. And so we'll continue to see that today. Now, uh, as we pick back up in Luke 6, you may remember uh, that in the previous passage we looked at, Jesus talked about a series of blessings and woes. And one of the last blessings he gave, we read in verse 22 and 23, was this. He said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So Jesus says, if we are hated, which we will be, our reward is great in heaven. Now the question is, well, what about now? <laughs> what about the time before we get to heaven? How are we to respond to those who hate us today, who hate the gospel we stand for today? And, and that's really what he now preaches on as we continue in the passage and his call of what we're to do in re response to those who hate us and hate our message. So we're going to look at Luke 6, verses 27 through 36, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read today's sermon passage for us. And this is what God's Word says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. But if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father 
is merciful. If you would, pray with me. Father, this is a hard command. It goes against the instinct of our flesh. It goes against the natural desires of our hearts. So often when we are insulted, we want to insult in return. When we are hated, we don't naturally want to offer kindness and love. When people attack us, attack those we love, attack the gospel we stand on, our initial gut response to that is not goodness and kindness and love. So often the fists go up, not down. So help us, Lord, to understand what you are calling us to do and help us understand how you indeed empower us to do what you call us to do. That we might respond differently to our enemies than those in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you may remember I I started off our, our study with a series of questions, and I'm going to do the same thing today. I, I want you to think about this as we walk through it. Three, three questions, similar to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Now, the first question is this. How do you respond to people who are opposed to you and opposed to the things you believe in? How do you respond to people who are, who are in opposition to you in whatever way that might be and, and in opposition to the things that you believe in? That people who attack you on Facebook when you post something that, that they don't like and that they don't agree with. People who argue with you over your views and opinions, whatever your views and opinions might be. People who cuss you out. People who verbally attack you. People who don't like you and they don't like the things you believe in. And oftentimes the reason they don't like you is because of the things you believe in. People who maybe at one point you got along with just fine. But now there's great division between you. How do you respond to those people? When you're confronted with words, with attacks, with opposition, how do you respond? Question two is this. How does the unbelieving world respond when those same things happen? Those who have no love for God, no love for God's word, those who are not gathered in this church or any other this Lord's day, nor see any need to gather in the church, those who don't believe the gospel, who reject the truths that we live our lives based on, those unbelievers out there, when they are attacked, when they are confronted, when they are hated by others, how do they respond when these same things happen to them? And then the third question, and I asked this a couple weeks ago as well, should our response to opposition and enemies look any different than the world's response to opposition and enemies? If there was a survey conducted today and that survey were to look at those who profess to be followers of Jesus and those who clearly say they're not followers of Jesus and that survey measured responses to opposition, measured how they respond to posts on social media, measured 
what they do when verbally attacked, assaulted, whatever it might be, would that survey yield different results when it looked at Christians and non-Christians, or would they be the same? I believe that Jesus here in this sermon, he, he is calling us to look different. The question is, do we? Let's think about that as we walk through this passage. We'll begin there with the first question I put there in your outline. And the same question I asked a couple weeks ago. What sets us apart from an unbelieving world? What sets us apart from an unbelieving world? Again, in Matthew's gospel, we read Jesus clearly saying to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. That word again, church, it means to be called out, to be set apart. That, that is who we are as followers of Jesus. We, we come together each Lord's Day as a people coming together who are a people that are set apart. Uh, people that should look different than those around us. The question is, do we look different than those around us? That's clearly the message, I believe, in the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is going through a series of things to point out to these people, these disciples, how they are to look different than the world around them. Now again, the context here we read earlier in this passage is Jesus has called out the apostles, the twelve that they're referred to as, from the greater group of disciples. These are at this point likely hundreds who are following Jesus, who are, are believing him to be the Messiah, confessing him as their Lord. They, they are followers of Jesus. And from these many followers, he has called out from them the twelve. And now he has come down the mountain to the plain with the twelve, now addressing this greater group, and Luke tells us even beyond that, there is this great multitude. Now, these are the people that were attracted to Jesus, who, who wanted to hear from Jesus, but they weren't necessarily at this point followers of Jesus. This great multitude would have included, for example, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who at this point are trying to catch Jesus saying the wrong thing so that they might bring an accusation against him. And so there are many people gathered to hear Jesus preach, but Luke clearly tells us that the message of Christ here is not for everybody in this moment. It's for the disciples. He is speaking specifically to those who follow him. He makes that clear in verse 20. He's preaching to his disciples. And that's significant because if we don't understand the context in which this sermon is preached, we can misunderstand and misapply the lesson that we're learning. Because if we don't understand Jesus is preaching to followers, to disciples, then we will misunderstand this sermon to mean we have to do all these things in order to become disciples. Now Jesus is saying to those who are already a part of the kingdom, who are already following Jesus, here's what your life now looks like. You have faith, now here's how that faith works. And he's not saying do all these things in order to come into the kingdom. He's saying because you have come into the kingdom, here's how your life should look differently. And friends, this is an issue that confuses many still today. And many who believe if I just work hard enough, if I do these commands in my own effort, in my own flesh, then I might be saved, then I might be a Christian. My works might then save me. 
I'll stand before God. He'll, he'll measure my work somehow. If I was good enough, I'll get in. And that's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus calls us and all our sin, all our wickedness, enemies of God, to put faith in Christ, to come to the cross, to, to confess Him as Lord. He saves us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then He calls us as saved people, as set-apart people, to live our lives in accordance with these commands. So what we see in the Sermon on the Plain is a clear description of what saving faith then should look like, not here's a list of things to do in order to have saving faith. So if you come to the Sermon on the Plain and you read love your enemies and you think, well, if I can just love my enemies, then I'll be okay. What happens when you don't love your enemies? Because you're going to struggle to love your enemies. I struggle to love my enemies. This is a hard command. And if we read this command as an entrance door into the kingdom, that door is going to feel like it slams in our face a lot. And we're going to really question whether we're saved or not. But what Jesus is clearly saying here is the door is open. We have come in. He has saved us, rescued us, redeemed us, made us new. He is sanctifying us. He is now empowering us in the power of his Holy Spirit to do things that are unnatural, that are not of our flesh, as called out, set apart people. And one of those things is to do what is not natural at all to us. It's to love those who don't love us. To love those who even hate us. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. This is one of the marks of the redeemed. And so he's clearly saying to his followers here, to us who follow him today, we should look different. We are set apart. Our responses then to our enemies should look radically different than the world's responses to their enemies. How should it look different? Well, that's what we'll look at now. Moving on to point two there in your outline. We should look different in that, number two, we love the people that the world hates. We love the people that the world hates. That the world hates those who oppose them. We are called to love those who oppose us. Again, it's a hard command. Look at it again, verse 27. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear." Again, I believe he's reiterating what we already read in verse 20. He's speaking to his disciples. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Not everyone has ears to hear. Some will sit in this church or another this morning. The gospel will be clearly proclaimed. They will not hear it. They will not understand it. It will be foolishness to them. And they will walk out of the church just as they walked into the church, as lost as they were when they got here. That their ears are just shut off to the God. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They want to do everything they can to get away from it. Maybe somebody drags them in. Maybe they come to church under compulsion, but, but they're not open at all to the gospel. They want their sin. Surely people like that were gathered here to hear Jesus. Surely there were people who came hearing about this miracle-working rabbi, and they just want a miracle. They don't want a life change. 
But Jesus here is not talking to them. He's talking to those who indeed do believe, to those who indeed hear. And he says to those who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now again, it's always important for us to understand the context in which God's word is given. And the context of this day when Jesus gives this word is that people weren't taught to do that. People in the unbelieving community, people in the believing community were not taught that you needed to love your enemies. They were taught you love the people who love you. You reciprocate those who who love you. You love them in return. But you're under no obligation to love those who hate you. In fact, one ancient philosopher's teachings who were very prevalent in Jesus' day said this, I consider it established that one should do harm to one's enemies and be of service to one's friends. (laughs) So somebody's your enemy, don't just ignore them. Do harm against them. That's what they want to do to you. They hit you, you hit them. They steal from you, you steal from them. They insult you, you insult them. That was the expectation. That was the the, the philosophy of the day. And sadly, that philosophy had crept its way into the church. Because the rabbis were essentially teaching the same thing. They were teaching the people of God, you are obligated to love other people of faith like you. You are under no obligation to love anyone else. And they would... Cite, for example, from God's law in Leviticus 19.18, which says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the rabbis would point to this passage and they would say, clearly, your neighbor is people who are like-minded in your believing community. And so don't bear a grudge against them. Don't take vengeance on them. They're part of the people of God. But then they would say, but you're under no obligation to do this. In fact, you shouldn't do that to to people outside the faith. And so they fell in with that ancient philosophy of their day. If they're not part of us, return to them with a gift to you. They slap, you slap. They take, you take. They insult, you insult. And so when, when, when Jesus here stands up and says, love your They're not expecting enemies to be the next word. They're likely expecting him to reiterate this teaching in Leviticus. Love your neighbor. Love those like you. Love those who believe like you believe. You have to understand that this topic of enemies in this day, in this setting, the Jewish people were surrounded by enemies. That the Roman Empire controlled the Jewish people, the Jewish land. That this land they were promised by God was now occupied by their oppressors, their enemies. They paid outrageous taxes just to breathe Roman air. And remember, this is their land. This is their place of worship. And it is occupied and controlled by wicked, evil people. Do you take out a book that tells you details about the ancient Roman Empire, and as a follower of Christ, you shouldn't even be able to finish that book because it's wicked and evil. You you look around the world today and you think things are pretty perverse and messed up. You haven't seen anything until you study ancient Rome. 
It is the darkest of the dark. From those in authority down to the common man. It was wickedness and it was prevalent. And you have the Jewish people being occupied by these pagan worshipers. And what they were believing at this time was that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to set us free from all this. The Messiah is going to overthrow all this. The Messiah is going to come and we're going to get back what is ours. This will be our land. They will be gone from it. And the Messiah will set up God's kingdom here on earth. The Messiah will make things right. And so imagine that context. You're, you're like Simon. You're, you're a zealot. You're holding fast to these truths of God's word in relation to Israel. You're waiting for the restoration, the consolation of Israel. And you hear about this rabbi who's gathering quite a crowd. He's doing the things that God's word said the Messiah would do. This may indeed be the one. You go out to the plain. You see him surrounded by hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. You believe that this is the day and this is the time. He's going to make it all right now. You're not going to be paying outrageous taxes to these foreign oppressors anymore. That their filth, their wickedness that lays bare in the streets surrounding the temple that you go to worship in, it's going to be cleaned up. It's going to be gone. He's going to make all things right. He's going to kick your enemies out of your sight. And you go out there, you bring your family. This rabbi comes down the mountain. He's got surrounding him these 12 apostles in your mind. You're thinking 12 tribes of Israel, this makes sense. This is him, this is the one. He opens up his mouth and he says, love your enemies. And you say, do what? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Jesus, you, 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 somebody didn't give you the memo here. <laughs> You're supposed to get rid of our enemies. You're supposed to overthrow our enemies. We've been waiting for justice. Bring justice now. Jesus says, love your enemies. <laughs> you, you may be aware that there are multiple words in the Greek language for love. They they imply different types of love, and so where in our English language we just say love, that love can mean a, a romantic love, it can be a, an affectionate love, it can be a, a love of desire, oh, I, just, I just love this, I just love this person. It, it can be a word that implies attraction, but, but there's a different kind of love in the Greek language, and the word for that kind of love is used here, and it's, it's a volitional choice. It's, it's a love where you're loving the unlovable, where you're, you're making a decision to show love in a situation that naturally wouldn't draw love out. It's a choice. And that makes sense because you don't have a natural affection for your enemies. You're on a road trip as I was recently and you're going down the interstate and it's bumper to bumper traffic and there's something on those long eight, nine, ten hour days on the road. You just start noticing things. You start keeping a tab in your head of how people don't know how to use turn signals. 
how for some reason they think in bumper-to-bumper traffic, if they, if they cut you off, they're going to get there early. And you start noticing things, and then, then maybe you start getting a little mad. And, and chances are when, when something happens as simple and as basic as somebody cutting you off in traffic or doing something you don't like when you're on a crowded road, your response usually is not, oh, I love that person. I hope in God's providence I can catch back up to them and maybe I can stop at a gas station and get a Hallmark card for them, some flowers. You don't feel that affection, do you? You probably feel something else, an anger, a frustration. We have a term for it, road kindness. Turn on the evening news. Well, we had another case of road love today. Back to road rage, we associate with, okay, this plus this shouldn't equal this. I mean, people kill people because of road rage. I lived in Bowling Green for 14 years, shortly before we moved here in 2010. That there was a youth pastor leaving his church who got involved in a road rage incident with a sheriff's deputy. And one of them shot and killed the other. Two people who you would think would have enough sense to know who got there first is not worth a human life. But they both pulled guns on each other, one shot and killed the other. Over what? Jesus says, when you've called somebody a fool in your mind, you're a murderer. It's not hard to see where that connection goes. We can go to intense rage when we're offended over people we don't even know. And so don't read this passage and Jesus says, love your enemies and suddenly think, well, I don't have any enemies. I love everybody. Well, take, take the blinders off. Because within us, there is the capacity to suddenly and quickly identify someone as an enemy that we don't even know. And then think about those we do know. Those who offend us over and over and over again. Those who attack us over and over and over again. People we know who perhaps at one point we sat at a table with, we shared a meal with, and now we don't even talk to them. Over what? I read a study not long ago talked about the, the, divisiveness, the divisiveness of the day we live in. According to one study in 2017, in that year alone, one in six people, one in six Americans, admitted they no longer talk to a relative over their difference in political views. We've got enemies. And Jesus says to us this, this hard statement. He says you've got to love them. Doesn't mean you have this natural affection brewing up within you for them. Doesn't mean you feel this, this attractional love for them. It means you make a volitional decision. I'm going to love you. Verse 27, he says, when somebody's hateful to you, do good to them. Is that your natural response? Tell you what's even more unnatural. He keeps going. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. (laughs) I mean, somebody curses you and Jesus says, 
Don't hold your tongue. Don't just walk away. Bless them. I was talking to a friend not long ago who was, uh, he was in Louisville. Uh, up until recent decisions, there was a very active abortion clinic there. And, and he had gone with a group of others that day uh, to, to pray at the abortion clinic. They, they were across the street. There were many of them gathered. They were silent. They were quiet. They weren't holding up signs. They weren't shouting to people. They weren't hindering anyone from going into the clinic. They were simply standing together in prayer. Praying that God would change the hearts of young mothers walking in with a desire to murder their unborn child. Praying that God would work, that God would preserve life. Praying for families to adopt these children, to love these children. Praying for the day these children would come to hear the gospel, that they would respond to the gospel, lined up in a line and praying. Well, their, their prayer gathering had been announced beforehand, and there were people who were opposed to this. And so on that particular day, there were a couple of folks that showed up with the sole purpose of just cursing and insulting those who were gathered to pray. And He's standing there with his wife, and he said this, this woman came by. She was riding a bicycle up and down this line. And he said, Richard, I've never heard obscenities like this. He said, it was just pure evil. And she was inches from my face, and, and I could feel her spit on my face as she was shouting out and just cursing me for standing there and praying. Now, again, put yourself in that situation. Somebody's cursing you and they're shouting obscenities to you and they're in your face. What is your heart's desire in that moment? What is your flesh response to that? I said, what did you do? He said, I offered her a bottle of water. <laughs> it was a hot day. And I offered to pray for her. I asked her how I could pray for her. So what did she do? Yeah, she cussed at me and went on to the next person. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Keeps going. He says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. <laughs> I heard a story years ago from uh, Dr. Booker, who pastored this church for a number of years. He was one of my professors at seminary, and I remember in an evangelism class he was sharing about uh, Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was a uh, traveling uh, evangelist in the 1800s. Uh, he was a preacher. He, he was a very tough guy. He was known as the, the backwoods preacher, the Lord's plowman. He would go into towns. He would preach the gospel, and he faced great opposition. On one occasion, he was riding his horse into a town, and the town drunk stopped him at, at the entrance to the town. He got off to talk to this man and, and he just shouted obscenities at him and he cursed him and he, he told him he wasn't welcome there and he walked up to Cartwright and he just, he just slapped him on his face. And then he looked at Cartwright and he said, I know what your Bible says. It says if I hit you on one side of the face, you have to let me hit you on the other side of the face. Cartwright said, you're right. He turned his cheek. And that drunk guy just wham, whacked him right on that side of the cheek. Cartwright later wrote in his diary, receiving no further instruction from the Lord, I proceeded to beat the foolishness out of this man. <laughs> I 
I, I don't think that's the proper application of this passage. But, but we get it, don't we? Because that, that's what we want to do. We want to strike back. Now, I think really the context of what Jesus says here has nothing to do with someone hitting you in the face and physically assaulting you. This, this terminology has to do with being insulted. That, that smack on the face, they, they insulted you. And so they insult you and you, you allow them to insult you again. You don't trade insult for insult. I, I don't think that the proper application of this passage is if you were in some type of abusive situation, continue in that abusive situation and just pray for the person. So if I'm riding to church one day and I get to the sign that says welcome to Bloomfield and there's a town drunk and they're going to smack me on the face, I'm going to drive away from them. I'm going to get away from it. I don't think the natural, the, the right application is, oh yeah, hit me on this side, hit me on this side. Now to what Jesus is saying, again, in the context of what he's saying here, is someone insults you and they will insult you. You stand on the truth of the gospel, and that is offensive to a lost and dying world. They will hurl insults at you. Our job's not to trade insults with them. He keeps going. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs of you. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now again, I think there's some misunderstanding of this. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is if you go home from church today and somebody broke into your house and they stole all your stuff and they loaded up a truck and they're driving down the street and you see them, but then you notice they didn't steal your car. You've got to track them down and say, hey, you forgot something. Here's the keys. Remember the context. Love your enemies. The, the, the context here of begging in that culture, that this is not what we think of as begging in our culture. This is not walking through a downtown metro area and 48 people asking you for your spare change and they obviously look inebriated or whatever it might be. That's not the application here. The, this begging is a request. It is asking. It is someone who has a real need coming to you and asking for you to help them with that need. And in the context of Jesus' day, again, the rabbis would teach you are obligated to help out people like you you're not obligated, and you should not help out those who are not like you, especially those who are enemies of you. And Jesus is saying, no, you are to love your enemies. And so if they're in need, you help them, just like you would help those who aren't your enemies. Love them. And then he kind of brings all this together, verse 31, we refer to as the golden rule. Treat them the way you want to be treated. How do you want somebody to treat you? Then treat them that way. So, so how do you want people to treat you? With mercy? With grace? Better than you deserve to be treated? Then treat others that same way. That This, Jesus says, distinguishes us from an unbelieving world. And then he goes through to say, because listen, this is how the unbelieving world is. They love people who love them. So when you love people that love you, that doesn't set you apart. That's what the lost and dying world does. That they are kind and good to people who are kind and good to them. That they lend to people who, who are part of their group who are going to pay them back. They do all these things to others who they love already. And so if that's what you're doing, way to go. You don't look any different at all. 
No, we should be set apart and we should be distinguished from them. In fact, I think what he's pointing out here and talking about the world is essentially when you look at how the world loves, the world keeps score. So, so I'm going to do something for that person because they did something for me, but this one didn't do anything for me, so I'm not going to do anything for them. Well, yeah, I, I helped out that person because, you know, they, they helped me out a while, a while back. I mean, that's kind of how we talk, isn't it? You know, I appreciate you doing this for me. I'll make sure to, to get you back sometime. But then what about that person who, given the opportunity, never helps us out? Never does anything good for us. Are we naturally inclined to then help that person out? Because if we don't, Jesus says, well, that's, that's the world. The, the world keeps score. God's people shouldn't keep score. But, but we do, don't we? I mean, some of you have a scorecard this morning that's probably tucked in your Bible. You know who offended you, and you know how they offended you, and you, you, you've drawn a line on that scorecard. Maybe, maybe you have marked their name out. You ain't ever picking them to be on your team. <laughs> you're, you're not trusting them because I trusted them this other time, and they let me down. I trusted them here, and they let me down. I trusted him there, and they let me down. Taking them off the list. Maybe you find yourself at times much more compelled to love certain people because they're just so gracious and so kind. And when you look at the scorecard, you're like, man, I don't think I'm ever going to catch up to them. And they've done so much for me. How can I ever do enough to repay them? Jesus says that that's the way the world operates. That's not the way God operates. I'm so thankful that's not the way God operates. Because I tell you this morning, my, my scorecard is sorry. My, my scorecard is filled with unkept vows. My, my scorecard is filled with, Lord, I'm never going to do this again. Did it, did it, did it, did it. My scorecard is filled with with annual Bible reading plans that didn't make it through January. My scorecard is filled with lists of people that I was going to share my faith with and never shared my faith with. My scorecard is filled with, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do this only to end up not doing this and doing this. Because my scorecard is filled with all my attempts that failed to do good and succeeded in doing far beyond what I thought I was capable of. And thank the Lord that I'm not going to stand before God one day and Him pull out Richard Allen Carwell's scorecard because if that's what's going to happen, I have no hope. But I tell you what's going to be pulled out. It's going to be the scorecard of Jesus and the righteousness of Christ and God's going to look at Christ's righteousness when he looks at me. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, to a person who was neither good nor faithful, but who trusted in the one who is perfectly good and perfectly faithful, who he has cleansed and washed and made new and clean, and now through the power of his Holy Spirit has allowed me 
to now walk by faith and not by sight, to do good and not evil, not because of anything about me or anybody that I am or any lesson I learned or any, any book I read, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, is making me more and more like Jesus. As I'm faithful to God's command to open up His Word and to read it and through the power of the Spirit to seek to obey it. And when I fail and when I fall down to try to get back up. But if I start keeping score, I'll tell you, it doesn't look good. And if you're keeping score this morning, it doesn't look good for you either because then we're starting to rely on our works and rely on our flesh. And our works and our flesh will always disappoint us. The grace be to God. That we stand before God, not based on our scorecard, but based on the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus says here clearly, we, we don't keep score like the world does. We love as God loves. Point three, we, we show mercy to people that the world rejects. Because what the world does is the world takes out that scorecard and says, well, well you didn't do for me and I'm not going to do for you, so I'm just done with you world says, I, I know exactly what you said. I did a screenshot of it. It's right here. You thought you could delete it. I didn't delete it. That's what the world does. Jesus says we're called to be different. Verse 35, he says, but love your enemies and do good and, and lend and expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. For, for He, speaking of God here, the Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. <laughs> Again, the context here, the Jewish people, they're hearing the Messiah. They're ready for the evil to be tossed out, thrown out, judged and dealt with. And what does Jesus say? God is kind to them. Because God's kind to you. So be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I mean, that's a command we see reiterated in so many ways. We're, we're to do to others as God has done to us. First John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. And remember, we weren't so lovable. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we're called to show this love and show this mercy because God has shown it to us. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing with this command? Are you loving others? Not, not just the lovable ones. <laughs> not, not just the ones who show you love, but, but the ones who have done the exact opposite. Who've been hateful and wicked and stand in opposition to everything you believe in and aren't scared to let you know how opposed they are. Are you loving them? Are you doing good to people who hate you? Are you praying for those who abuse you? Are you giving to those who don't deserve it? Who haven't earned it? Who offer you nothing in return for your generosity? If you find, as I have found that you are struggling to do these things. It's for one of two reasons. One, it's really hard to do this. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. 
And if you don't think it's hard, then let me know why it's not hard for you. Because it's hard for me to love my enemies. But Jesus never calls us to anything that he doesn't empower us through the Holy Spirit to do. And one of the reasons it's hard is because we try it so much in our flesh. And rather than taking a moment to pray and seek God's wisdom and and ask him to empower us through his Holy Spirit to do these very things he called us to do, to be honest with God in prayer about those who are our enemies, those who don't like us, those who are opposed to us, to go before the Father with their names, with these requests, Father, help me to love because I don't want to. And it's the most unnatural thing in the world for me to do. But help me to love them and to do good to them and to bless them and put them in my heart to pray for them. So, so it could be we're struggling because it's hard and it's part of sanctification and sanctification is hard. Or it could be because we haven't really experienced God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness. It could be because we're, we're looking at the Sermon on the Plain as the entrance into the kingdom and we're thinking, well, if I just try hard enough, I'll do this. If I just work hard enough at it, I can accomplish this. But we can't. We, we can't love others the way God loves us until we respond to the love of God through repentance and through faith. God so loves us that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But, but we need to respond to that gospel truth, the scripture says, through confessing Jesus as Lord, believing in our heart that God raised from the dead, him from the dead, and, and being saved through the power of the gospel. And so this message this morning, God may be using your life just to bring you to a point of brokenness and conviction that you might see that you're never, never, never going to stand before God and plead your scorecard. But you desperately need to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus. And that can happen if you'll, just, if you'll just confess Christ as Lord and repent today. So God may be leading some to just repent and trust in Christ for others, to repent of your bitterness, your, your, your attitude towards enemies, towards those who've hated you. There might be some deep-rooted stuff here that you need to go before the Father with so that then, empowered by the Spirit, you might rightly obey God's command. And so whatever it is God is calling you to do, we want to give you a chance to do those things now and to respond to God's word now. So I want to invite you to stand together, if you would, and I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to respond to God's word.